So keep your Bibles open at the passage that Gail read to us. We're studying this letter of 2 Peter on Sunday evenings. This letter is from an apostle. Therefore, it is binding on you as the word of God. It's a letter to all of us who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter has made it plain that the purpose of writing this letter to all who claim to be Christian believers is that he might bring us to a point of spiritual soundness or health, as we saw at the beginning, to stimulate his readers to wholesome thinking. And the great theme of the letter is that we as Christians should take ourselves in hand and that we should take specific and practical measures to make sure we are progressing in the Christian life. And Peter has emphasized throughout the letter that if we are making progress in the Christian life, that we are going on, that will prove and demonstrate that we really do have new natures, that we really are true Christians, that we really are saved. But if we don't make progress, if we fail to go on, that shows that our nature hasn't actually been truly changed and we will be lost. And he has put that to us in some of the plainest language in the New Testament. Then he's gone on to tell us that there are two sets of people who are a particular hindrance to you if you're trying to live as a Christian. Two sets of people. First, false teachers who corrupt the truth and cause us to drift and not make progress. And for an excellent and very contemporary treatment of that subject, if you didn't listen to Sam last week, do log on and listen to it. Uh, It will open your eyes and it will give you such an insight into what this means for us today. Now, as well as false teachers, there are those who make fun, those who scorn, those who laugh at what we believe and cherish, particularly on the teaching about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And we'll see that in a moment. They're called scoffers. Now, Peter hasn't just left us with warnings. He has left us with practical instruction. And he has told us that the greatest single help to making progress in the faith is prayerful attention to the scriptures. He's told us that in chapter 1, and he's told us that again at the beginning of chapter 3 that we read a few moments ago. Now, as we come to chapter 3 tonight, we see it does have a major theme. And I am going to fail miserably as your preacher tonight, because I cannot do this justice in half an hour. It is the most glorious, most awesome, most terrifying of themes. And it is the theme of the day of the Lord, or the day of God, the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the teaching we find in this chapter is weighty stuff. I think we've got a hint of that, as Jason has led us in our worship already and as Gail has read the chapter to us. And before Peter describes the day of the Lord and what it means, see how he opens up in verses 1 and 2. He says, Dear friends, beloved friends, precious people, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So the teaching he's going to bring them now is strong. They need to be reminded again of the foundation and source 
of all the truth and where this teaching comes from. Who was responsible for writing the Old Testament? The prophets. Who is responsible for writing the New Testament? The apostles. So what he is saying to them at the beginning of the chapter is this, and what he wants us to remember is this. Back to the Bible. I'm writing to get you to the Scriptures. That is essential. So we're going to think about this subject of the Day of the Lord in two sections. First of all, the characteristics of the Day of the Lord... And then what effect the truth of the coming of the, day on the, of the day of the Lord must have on our lives. And the first thing Peter tells us about the day of the Lord in verse 10 is that it is certain. But the day of the Lord will come, he says at the beginning of verse 10. Now look back in the chapter and you will see that the scoffers particularly make fun of the coming of the day of the Lord. They will say, well, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There's no sign of the Lord's coming. You've been on about this, but hey, look up into the sky. What do you see? Blue sky and clouds. We don't see the faintest, remotest evidence that these things will happen. We see generations coming and going, and everything happens as it always has done. We see no sign at all of what you're threatening with us, threatening us with. So, very well, we're Christians here tonight, most of us, I suspect. What are we to meet when, what are we to bear in mind when we meet such people? You know, you can debate things like creation, the person of Christ, the resurrection with But if you start to talk about the second coming of Christ, they do have that kind of Looney Tunes look, you know, the end is nigh. It is a teaching that is very much scorned and mocked in our day and always has been. Three things here. What they say is simply not true. Things are not the same. They have not always been the same. God has once stepped into history to show the world that sin will not go unpunished. There has already been a great event of judgment in history. God created the world by his word. It was a watery chaos. And out of that watery chaos, he made a perfect world. The water sustained the life which God has put upon the planet. In verses 5 and 6 in our chapter, we read this. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the very same water, God brought a cataclysmic event, a judgment on the whole world. So the universe is not just a machine that hums along, everything's happening generation after generation, as it has always done. It is a creation, it is God's creation, and he has already stepped in once dramatically to overthrow wickedness. Things have not always been the same, so the scoffers are wrong. The second thing we should bear in mind is in verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, God has stepped in once, but he has not stepped in for the last time. The very word that created this universe is keeping this universe, as it were, like a prisoner in a cell. The very same word, and it's bringing this universe to a point of another cataclysm, a day of fire, 
and a day of judgment. On that day, verse 7, there will be a judgment and ungodly people will be lost and punished. Now, creation is a certainty as we look back, and the conflagration is a certainty as we look forward. The conflagration is as certain as the creation. The day of the Lord is certain. There's a third thing we should bear in mind when we think about the certainty of the day of the Lord against those mockers who say, Phew, it ain't going to happen. Verses 8 and 9, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There are very good reasons why the Lord hasn't come yet. Now, I make you a promise to come to your house and bring you some chocolate. Okay? And uh, you stay in and wait for me tomorrow. But I don't come. Each night for the week you expect me, but I don't come. And this goes on through the month of September, and I don't come, and it comes to Christmas, and I don't appear, and you think, well, Smith has forgotten his promise. He's not going to keep his promise. I'm not going to get any chocolate. That's how we look at things. Someone makes a promise, and then weeks and years come and go. We think that person has forgotten the promise. And that's understandable, because we have that human perspective, but we should not apply that, friends, to God. Years have come and gone, but the promise of his coming has not yet been fulfilled. God is not a creature. He is not bound by time. With him, a day is as a thousand years. Look at Noah. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. How long was he a preacher of righteousness? How long, how long did people make fun of him with this great big thing? And he's saying... It's a coming, the floods are coming, and they laugh and they mock and they scoff. And all those years went by before God did judge the world. He was patient in Noah's day. And Peter is saying that the time lapse has no bearing whatsoever on the certainty of God's promise. The promise is no less certain because God seems, seems to have delayed in fulfilling it. Now, the reason for God's apparent delay is not that he's slow, not that he's slack, not that he's absent-minded, not that he's busy, but that God is kind. Now, when you die, there is no further opportunity to repent. When the world ends, there will be no further opportunity for anyone to repent. As long as you are alive, you have opportunity to repent. As long as the world exists, people can come to Christ. And so it's because God is infinitely kind that he is holding mercy's door open. Now, who is he holding it open to? All of us. To how many people is God long-suffering? All of us. How many people does God wish should perish? None of us. How many people does God desire should come to repentance? Every single man, woman, boy, and girl. And I do not think you can read that verse, this scripture, in any other way. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, some people are embarrassed by that verse. Oh dear, they say. Here is the doctrine of election that tells us that God chose certain people and passed others by. And here is a verse that tells us that God does not wish any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I can take one verse in its plain sense, but how can I take the other in its plain sense? I can't tie it up. So you can't tie it up. Oh dear, how sad. What a pity. Now you think when you go on holiday to Wales or or the north of England particularly, you see dry stone walls and you see that men have taken great stones and placed them on top of each other and next to each other. They're all different shapes and they're all different sizes, but they stay there and they can stay there for years and years and years and there's no mortar, there's no cement. They just rest perfectly together. Now, these texts are great stones that rest perfectly together. Ask me to explain it to you, I can't. We take it in plain sense. We have a God who is infinite. We have a God whose ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts our thoughts. This verse tells us that God sincerely desires the salvation of every man, woman, and boy and girl, and that is why he is patient, and that is why the day has not yet come. So when we get to heaven, we can say, thank you, Lord, for saving me, but it was only by your grace. And those in hell will have to face the fact that it is entirely their responsibility that they're there. As God was not willing that any of them should perish, they are there because they want to be there. The day of the Lord will come. Mercy's door is open, open for everybody, but it won't be open forever. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is certain. The whole of history is moving in this direction. Now, that was a long point. They're not all as long as this. And I haven't told you how many points there are because that would frighten you to death. But that's a fairly long one because I just wanted to deal with that fact that we see in the Scriptures here. Secondly... The second thing that Peter tells us about the day of the Lord, the second characteristic, is that it's unannounced. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10. Now, Peter had been with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he spent time with him, and he'd heard his teaching, and Jesus had said, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Have you ever had a burglary? Did you have a phone call or a text beforehand saying, excuse me, this is the burglar? I'm at work in your area and I'll be around at 1,300 hours tomorrow when everyone is at work. Well, burglars don't do that. That's silly. And I think you might have taken steps to prevent the burglar coming if you'd had a warning. They don't announce their coming. They plan and then they execute the deed. The timing of the Lord's coming is not known. And the Lord in Matthew and Peter here, are not referring to a secret coming, as some have tried to say, that the Lord will appear somewhere in Jerusalem. And it's not like that at all. These scriptures clearly teach it is going to be the momentous event of history when Christ returns. The point is here that we always 
have to be ready and we always have to be alert. Our Lord insists in the Gospels and Peter is insisting here that whoever we are and wherever we are, we must be ready, awake, because the coming of the Lord will be unannounced. The next characteristic is that the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, will be the end. Look at verses 10 and 12. The day of the Lord is the end of the present heavens and earth as we know them. The heavens will will, will will disappear in a roar of flames, verse 12. The elements, verse 10, from which this physical universe is composed shall melt and be dissolved. The earth shall be laid bare. All these things will be destroyed. Now, Peter is teaching here that history will end in a final and terrible fire, and the heavens and the earth as we know them will be no more. But that's not all, he says. The day of the Lord is certain, it's unannounced, it's the end. But he goes on in verse 13 to tell us that the day of the Lord is only the beginning. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Oh, that we had time to unpack that phrase, but in keeping with his promise. And trace all of that from Genesis through to Revelation. We haven't got time, but it is the most fascinating study. We look for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And Peter is teaching us here that the universe will be remade. It'll be restored. It'll be glorious. It'll be glorious. After the coming of Christ, sin will not have the final word. And in this new creation, righteousness will find its home. This is marvelous teaching. But all evil will be destroyed and evil people will suffer their just punishment. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And Peter is holding out to us this hope. Here is a universe with no sin, no curse, no thorns, no thistles, no chaos, no frustration, no pain, no suffering, no sickness, no old age, no lies, no exhaustion, no death, no misery, nobody envying anybody, no temptation, nothing to be afraid of, no failure, It's a heaven and earth that is the home of righteousness. No crime, no terror, no darkness. It's what Peter calls in the Acts of the Apostles the restoration of all things. Now we pause for a moment and allow me to put on a very large anorak. And I hope you'll forgive me, but I have got this illustration about the new heavens and the new earth. Now I'm a steam locomotive enthusiast. And before you switch off, please hear me out. Back in the early 70s, there was a steam engine called Blackmore Vale. Now, Blackmore Vale is a West Country-class Pacific that was rotting in Barry Scrapyard in South Wales. Great big steam locomotive built just after the war for express services from London to Bournemouth and the West Country. Obviously, no longer required because of the diesel age and just a rotting, rusting hulk. She was ransomed by the Bluebell Railway in East Sussex. And I remember seeing Blackmore Vale when she was brought on a low loader all the way from South Wales. And what on earth are you going to do with that? It won't go, it won't take steam, it's literally full of holes, completely corroded, a rusting hulk. 
I think about five years and an awful lot of money and an awful lot of time and labour by volunteers. Later, I went to the Boobara Highway again on the first steaming of Blackmoor Vale and you have never seen anything like it. Completely ransomed and restored. Bright, shining southern region, malachite green, yellow livery, the perfect plate, Blackmoor Vale, the heat, the smell, the noise, the sound... A whole rake of coaches behind her as she left Sheffield Park Station. Now that is a very poor illustration of what will happen when Christ comes and there is a new heaven and a new earth. The rotting hulk that doesn't work anymore because of sin will be restored into glory. I think actually John does a better job to give us an illustration and a a trailer of this in Revelation 21. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven and from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So now think on it. That is the certain, unannounced event at the end of this present universe and the beginning of this everlasting and indescribable wonder for the people of God. Now that's what Peter tells us about the day of the Lord. Now we move on. Having told us these truths and given us a a trailer of the wonder and horror of it all to make our heart's desire to be the home of righteousness. So in the light of this certain, unannounced, final beginning, this truth must have an impact on my Christian life. It really, really must. Now, people around us do think that the state of affairs will go on forever, and all we need to do is make a better world. And we know that that isn't the case, and we know that's a busted flush. We know it won't work. We know differently, and because we know differently, we cannot and must not live the same. And I think we can summarize Peter's teaching on this vital truth about the implications of the day of the Lord on our lives into just three little phrases. How should a Christian live in the light of the day of the Lord? Verse 11, look inward, look inward. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So the person, so history is going somewhere, And soon everything we see around us and above us and beneath us will be gone and all that will remain is God and godliness. So the person who in this life does not have God or godliness will have nothing on that day. And that's what Peter means when he says, look inward to see if you do have God and godliness. The person who does have God and godliness will have all that they need on that day. When the great fire comes and this present, wor- this present earth and all its works are burnt up, nothing will matter except a godly character. Let's put it this way. There's a person in Chessington, 
in Dorking, in the suburbs, around here, wherever. And where is his or her heart? It's very likely to be money, home, holidays, body image, comfort, entertainment, reputation, family, approval. That person is laying up their treasures on earth. Now, all those things will be burned up and destroyed on the day of the Lord, dissolved. Everything on which that person sets their heart on will be gone, and they will be naked and poor and wretched. Another person living shoulder to shoulder with that person we just mentioned, what has that person set their heart on? They've set their heart on God and godliness. They've set their heart on following the Lord Jesus Christ. They've set their heart on obeying the Lord and making every effort to live for him in a hostile world. They have set their heart on serving the Savior who bled and died for them. They may have a family, yes, but they seek to bring them up to know and love the Lord. They pray for their family. They have a job, but they do that job for the glory of God and pray that they will do their duty and give a good account of themselves to God and their employer. They have possessions, maybe a very nice house and car, but they know they are a steward of all material things and will have to give an account of their stewardship to the Lord. They live their life in the presence of God and under the eye of God, and all of their heart is set on God. Now what happens then when the great fire comes, when the day of the Lord is here? All that they have set their heart on, they will still have. And that is what Peter is saying. Look inside tonight. What sort of man, what sort of woman are you? Am I? Verse 12, we can call this look upward. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So how else should my life be affected by this truth? Look upward. Don't live as if this world of ours is going on forever in the same way. Always be alert, always be watching, always looking for the day of the Lord. When I think like that, you know I am different. Today may be the day. So if today is the day, I will kill off that thought. I would not like to be found with that thought in my head at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Today may be the day, so I will not speak that word. I would not want to be found with that word on my lips at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Today may be the day I will not do that thing. I would not want to be called from doing that thing into the presence of he whose face shines like the sun. How different my life would be if I looked upward. How disciplined would my life be? How zealous would my service be? How holy would my life be? Now what does Peter mean here when he says... And so speed his coming. You know, is there any way in which we can actually accelerate the calendar of the Father? Only the Father knows the time. What do you mean here, Peter? Well, you imagine perhaps if you have little children and you go to a, a, a sports race at school. I remember one of, one of my children was good at sports and running. The other couldn't really be bothered, but one was good. And everything inside me would be saying to that child, come on, come on, yes, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Everything, every fibre of my being is willing the child to win. Or it might be an Olympic race. 
or it might be a horse race or whatever. We see the race, we're crying out with real intensity, we are willing it, we want it. We can't control the speed, we can't control the muscles or anything, but everything in me is speeding on the win. And John says at the end of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Something deep within him is crying out for Christ to come. But someone does say, well, how can I so desire the day of the Lord when my children aren't saved? My mum is outside the kingdom. My brother is so against Christian things. If Christ should come now, they would be damned. How can I cry out, come Lord Jesus? How can I long for Christ to come when I know my loved ones will perish? I would say that one of the greatest services we can do our loved ones who are outside the kingdom is to live in this life as one who can't wait to see their Lord. Now to verse 14. He's told us to look inward. He's told us to look upward. And he tells us to look forward. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter is telling me as a Christian that I'm not just to think about the great fire at the end of time, but to think of what's beyond. I'm to think beyond the new heavens, beyond to the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And this future world has to have a present world effect. That's what Peter is telling me. So if God should come now and take me from this present life straight into the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness, how much adjustment would my life require? Is there something in my life, another love, a sin maybe that is cherished? If God were to come and take me now straight to the new heavens and the new earth, I would resent being there, I would look back. If I tolerate sin in my life and live in the twilight between this world and its culture and the kingdom of God, if I was suddenly pulled into the new heavens and the new earth, at least half of me would feel like a foreigner, an alien. I think that's the kind of image that Peter is urging upon us, that we live in this life preparing for the new heavens and the new earth. Is there any Christian brother or sister with whom I'm at odds? There's a feud going on, I'm not talking to them, and God snatches us both together, and we're in the place where there's only righteousness. How bad that we who are to live there should be at odds here. And what is needed is this, that I am at war with sin, and I'm taking action against my sin, that when at last I am snatched from this warfare and placed in the new heavens and the new earth, it is a relief to me, the biggest sigh of relief that this warfare is over and sin is conquered and the struggle against these things that are such a pain and a hindrance to me are finally gone. Nobody is fit for there who is not taking steps to be holy here. So Peter has told us about this day and he has told us that it is certain, it is unannounced, it is the end, it is the beginning. And how that great truth should have an effect on me, you, and me in 2018. It should have this effect that I look inward. Is there seriously an attempt at godliness? I should look upward. Am I living my life in the light of his coming any day, every day? 
I should look forward. The new heavens and the new earth are my destination, the home of righteousness, and I should live appropriately here and now. Peter ends the letter in verse 18 by saying this to his readers, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think, and I've done this in the past, some of us are in a slow bicycle race. We're seeing how just, how slow we can pedal so that we don't fall off. But that is dangerous because you know, those of you who ride bikes, that you wobble and you do stop and you do fall off. And the Christian life, we are to pedal and we are to pedal hard. Peter is urging his readers and us to go on and on, always onward, always upward, always forward, always higher, always stronger. Make sure it's growth in grace, Christian qualities, as well as growth in knowledge. And make sure the growth in grace and knowledge are centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he starts the letter, he says, add to your faith this, 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 and this. And as he finishes and signs off, he says, grow, 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 and grow. And so here ends one of the plainest letters in the New Testament. Before I finish, and I'm going to finish one more minute, there's one thing I want to say. It's possible that we've come to the end of this letter in our four studies, and actually it's exposed our hearts, because that is what the Word of God does. And some here tonight may be professing Christians, but now in your heart you are doubting seriously whether you're a Christian at all. And maybe although you appear to be a Christian, and maybe you've appeared to be a Christian for many years to those around you, you're certain actually in your heart you're not a Christian at all. And you're asking the question, I'm not right with God after all. If I turn to God now, will he have me? I've been professing as a Christian for years. I've misled myself and others. Will God have me now? The answer is in this chapter, in verse 9, in verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Will God have me in Christ? He will. Mercy's door is still open. But soon mercy's door will be closed and there will be no further opportunity. Then where will you be? So the thrust here is to enter mercy's door while you may. Somebody says, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Then make sure. Call upon the Savior while mercy's door is open. I've lost my assurance. I I just don't know. Well, tell the Lord you don't know. And that you are lost and flee to Christ now. And on the basis of his promise, he will accept you because he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Be saved, because mercy is open to you. And then give all of your heart to persevering in the faith, because the day of the Lord will come. And on that day, I pray that all of us here will be able to say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious, penetrating, terrible, wonderful teaching from your word through Peter. Lord, we know that the day of the Lord is certain. It's a fixed date in your calendar, and it's 24 hours nearer than it was this time yesterday. 
And Lord, we fall into the trap of thinking things will go on and the day of the Lord is something out there, something distant. And our minds are clouded and we are caught up with the affairs of this life, so much mind clutter, so much obsession with the things of this world. Lord, clear those things away. Help us to focus on the fact that you are coming again and help us to desire that with John even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And help each one of us to live in the light of that coming, that we might take time to be holy, that we might prepare for that time when we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So, Father, hear our prayer, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.